Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Today, I am absolutely delighted to have Kerry Cullen on Life Beyond the Numbers. Kerry, you're so welcome. Oh, thank you, Susan. Delighted to be here and thank you for inviting me. And I love that Kerry is named Kerry because I'm from County Kerry. I live in England and Kerry, who's English, lives in Ireland. So it's quite a combination of different things going on there, but with a great sense of place. Yeah. And we've swapped because I was born in England and then moved back to Ireland where my parents are from. So there we go. Lots of connections. Lots of connections. (laughs) Now, as I was doing research for this episode, Kerry, I came across a phrase on your website that I wanted to know more the minute I read it and <laughs> cracking the performance paradox. What is the performance paradox and how might I or anyone else crack it? Yeah, thank you. Great question. The performance paradox is a term that I come up with working with lots of people in organisations who were doing really well, very successful, but yet I could see they were still struggling. And I'm also talking about myself in this as well. (laughs) And what I started to notice was that there is this paradox at play that we've got ourselves and that we're trying to do the best work that we can. We're dedicated putting in a lot of work and what we can do as we try to extend into that is actually let go of the resources that fill us up so I call this a performance paradox so if I give you like a 24-hour example so we get yeah so we might get up in the morning this is when the paradox is at play and let's say we get up early and we think I'm gonna go for my run and that's your plan I'm gonna go for my run and today I'm gonna get my lunch and then I'm gonna make sure I get a walk before I come home but you get up and you think actually I've got that report that I need to finish and I've got those emails so I'll just get a head start on those first 
and then I'll go and run, I'll run at lunchtime. So you start your day, you're, you're in the report. <laughs> Next thing you know, you don't have much time for breakfast. So you're having a cup of coffee, you're grabbing something for breakfast. And now you're in meetings or you're on Zoom or you're into your day. Then it gets to lunchtime and you haven't managed to get the report finished. And you think, I'll just keep working through that and get that done. And I know I said I was going to break for lunch, but actually it'd be better if I grab a sandwich, have it at the desk and I'll keep going because then I'll be able to finish and get out of here at a reasonable time. So we're kind of ended up a bit behind ourselves and the day continues and the afternoon is more meetings, more work. It could be by the time we actually get to finish up and by the time we've eaten, it could be kind of eight o'clock or whatever. And then you're too tired then to go and do your run or do your walk. And often the thought is, I just want an hour to myself to switch off. And then we might hit into Netflix. So we're not getting that restorative energy. And then we could go to bed. (laughs) We're setting the alarm then. And then we're looking at social media or, or news to try and catch up. So that's the performance paradox at play. And, you know, through dedication, we're trying to do the best that we can. But it's just so easy to let go of what we know restores us and gives us energy in that quest to keep going. And the more we do that, the more disconnected we are from actually what gives us energy. So that's what I mean by the performance paradox. It makes so much sense, Kerry. And as you were talking, you even sped up almost, you know, <laughs> as like I felt like we were rushing through the day to yeah. pack everything in so we could do something else, which we never then got to do. And, yeah. Yeah. and I recognize myself in that. I recognize others in that. And how do we break that paradox? Like, how do we? Yeah focus in on what restores our energy what is there a simple solution yeah and I well I think it's it's bringing awareness to that with compassion because as I think that's the paradox where it's through dedication and and it's through trying to do our best work and it's how our society is organized too right we have a lot of messages around that keeping going being productive so I think bringing awareness and challenging our assumptions around that but with compassion that we can start to bring in some new very small habits and try to keep those in place and I think when we do that we can start to notice a bit of a difference then so I often ask people if we're in a workshop just to get a sense of this in the body even as we're sitting if we think about the to-do list and everything we're trying to do And then if we imagine that that's on the right side of our body and then we lean over towards that and extend over towards that and just get a sense of that, it's like, how does that feel? Yeah. It's pulling at me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then if we come back and I suppose the question is, does that feel sustainable? And it doesn't really, we can't really hang out in this overextension. Yeah, it's it's a stretch. Like it's literally a a stretch. Yeah, yeah. So how can we extend into challenge, but from a place of resource? So even if we do that sitting that we're extending, but we're not overstretching. And you can even extend and come back. (laughs) So come back into rest. It's reminding ourselves we can do that. But it's trying to play with that in a different way to interrupt our habit around it. 
Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, and if you're not driving, obviously, <laughs> or you're in somewhere that you can actually just try that movement on for size, you can just rewind yeah. slightly and listen to it again, even. But actually, that physical connection to the feeling of being stretched. Yeah. It's like a wake up call. Yeah. 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 Bringing awareness yeah. through yeah. the body. And because I'd like yeah. to talk a little bit more about the body, Kerry, because you call yourself an embodiment coach, or that's how you represent yourself. So, how would you describe what that is to somebody who's never heard the term before? Ooh, good question. <laughs> Yeah, so I think in embodiment coaching, you know, that's it's really coming into relationship with somebody in a coaching scenario, and it's really enlivening awareness about those resources that are in our body. So, enlivening that conversation with our body, and I think it's important to say that we all have, we've all got these resources. We're born with these. So this is an innate wisdom that we all have. But I think we can be just going so fast sometimes or caught in that performance paradox that we lose some of that connection or we override some of that connection. If we think about it at a simple level of the body sending the messages that actually I need to rest for a while now, I need to sleep or I need to eat even, that sense of of overriding that to try and keep going. And I remember doing work on airlines with cabin crew and they'd quite often really need to go to the toilet, but they'd keep going because they just actually couldn't get the time to be able to do that. So embodiment coaching, how can we bring that natural awareness and relationship back into our body? And we know this simply, even coming back to the breath, when we can deepen the breath, come back to a sense of center. There's different language around it or having a sense of spaciousness in the body. So when we come back to that, and let's say we're thinking of a problem, if we're looking at the problem from that kind of faster paced energy and our breathing is more shallow and we're feeling a bit stressed about it, it's going to look very different than when we can actually come back in to just take a breath and just relax back and expand our vision, expand our awareness and look again. So it's just those simple strategies of of coming back into our natural way of being, really. So there's the resource and I think there's also the wisdom in the body. You know, we, we read now about the gut, the heart and the head. So if we're in that rushing energy and we're in that head energy and we're disconnected from the body, we're missing out on those messages from the gut and the heart. So it's coming back at that again, back into that connection that we can hear those whispers from the body of what matters or or what we might want to let go of, (laughs) that we might know at a gut level, but we're overriding that. So it's it's enlivening that relationship is really what embodiment coaching is about. As you're talking, I'm thinking about there's the overriding, absolutely for sure, or losing contact with the messages, but there's also, I guess, misinterpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you know, we might mistake that. For example, at the weekend, I felt really tired on Saturday. And I was like, this is a different tired to, you know, what's going on here? So I just sat quietly for a moment and I said, like, what is going on? And immediately I need water popped into my head. And I realized that actually my water, because I'm really good at drinking water, but my water consumption had gone down and I was thirsty. I didn't feel thirsty, but that was, and how I know that helped was because I drank a lot of water and my energy was restored. And I might never have figured that out (laughs) if I hadn't listened to my body. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and as I hear you speak, what I'm hearing is you created that pause and space. I think embodiment does require some spaciousness. I'm hearing that, that you stopped and you tuned in and you listened. So yeah, it's about creating spaciousness and a slower rhythm for ourselves to actually tune in. Absolutely, slowing down. And I suppose if I'm in this performance paradox, which a lot of listeners will be. We talked about habits and I think it is, there is that starting small, isn't there? And you talked about self-compassion, but I noticed that I have some healthy habits that I've like worked on. But when I step out of my routine, they tend to go. Yeah. And then when I come back, I feel a lot of pressure on myself to get them all back up again. Yeah. And I've noticed that actually the way to do it is to do one at a time. But it's back to that self-compassion, isn't it? Maybe we're hard on ourselves. We expect we're just going to flip a switch and get back into normal in inverted commas. So how do people reconcile that want to be back into their healthy habits or their good stuff or to slow down with everything else that goes on? Yeah, yeah, great question. And I recognize that too, you know, we can have habits that are linked to our routine, and then we lose the routine and we lose the habits. And, and yeah, I think there's that part of us that wants to just have everything back in place as, as it was. And you have it there in what you said, that it is around that starting small and just putting those habits back in one by one. And giving ourselves permission to be bad at it as well, I think, is important. There's there's a great TED talk about that. I can't think of the woman's name where she's getting herself back into exercising. And that's one of her terms is giving yourself permission actually to be bad at it. It's just actually getting the habit back in place. So, yes, to have compassion. And then when we have the habit, we can build on that. And I think also... We will let it go sometimes. That's also part of the human journey, isn't it? So we can beat ourselves up when we have let it go. So again, it's back to the compassion. But if we have that frame that we are going to let it go sometimes, and then it's just about building that back in again. And I love thinking about things in terms of rhythm. It's a helpful frame for me. If we think of things in the paradox, we're thinking quite linear that we're going to keep going. But actually, our daytime is governed by what's called the ultradian rhythm and the nighttime by the circadian rhythm. So this idea in our natural biology that we have these rhythms. So every 90 minutes or so, it can be less or a little more for people. 
that actually it's time to do something different. <laughs> and then we can see where we are with our habits as to what that difference is. But if we've been sitting for the morning, then it's to try and think in opposites can be really helpful. What's the opposite? I've been sitting. So what's the opposite? So even to stand and get up and walk around, instead of thinking, well, I have to go and do a 5K run now. <laughs> You know, that can be the perfectionist or that stretch mindset that comes in. We can go really big, but actually it's those just to keep it small and obtainable that, and to think in opposites. So going back to the cabin crew, when for them the opposite, they're walking up and down the aisle. Then for them, the opposite is actually to go and get some quiet time and sit down. So if we're at a computer, it's to actually stand and stretch and and also for our eyes to where we're looking at the computer and we're quite focused. So to allow some of that peripheral vision back online and to get out into nature if we can, if we're, you know, just to have a few minutes outside. And, and I think that's important as well, that it doesn't have to be, well, we've been at our computer for an hour and a half, so now I have to go and run for an hour and a half. It can be a small, just a small reset. And we can get really good at building that muscle. And bring in awareness, because what can happen, we've been on computer and we think, okay, I need a break. And it's so easy to get sucked into our phone then, right? Because we think, well, I'll just catch up on the WhatsApp group messages. And actually, that's not a break for our system. And again, it's back to that paradox. It's really easy to fall into that. So it's it's trying to think in opposites. What have you been doing and what creates a, a counterpoint to that? Because actually, we think we breathe in, we breathe out. We have this dualistic system. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And it feels there's a, a relaxation kind of that actually you don't have to go and run the 5K. You can go out in your garden, walk up and yeah. down the stairs, whatever it is. But it's just yeah. even that change of scene. Yeah, And that changes what you're thinking about as well because you have to think about something else once you start walking around because you have to stay upright and you have to do all of those things yeah yeah absolutely yeah so when you go into organizations Kerry and you talk about this how do people react because I think often time is the thing that people will say well, we don't have time for that. And the first scenario you described is a typical day for a lot of people. And actually the thought of even stopping can put pressure on people. It can feel yeah. overwhelming to take a five minute break. Mm -hmm. What are the challenges that you face with people when you are introducing them to this way of being? Yeah, well, it's interesting because generally I think we inherently have this wisdom within us anyway so I really see when I'm introducing this work I'm actually just reminding people of what they already know I don't really see a lot of resistance around the concepts because I think we know them in truth where we might trip ourselves up it is actually more of the thinking big then I get this and I'm gonna change everything you know and yes, and I do hear that too, that can be, well, I don't have time to take a break or whatever. So I think it can be helpful to think of that in a business case scenario. How do we build a business case for this? 
So it is reminding and building that case for actually when you do take the break, when you come back, you're actually going to have more energy and you'll be able to do a better job. So it's trying to actually challenge our assumptions and yet build that business case. There's a great Microsoft study that shows brains of people who have gone from back-to-back meetings and you'll see the brains, they get redder, which is the stress hormones increasing. And then they have a parallel of the same people who've taken a 10 minute break. I think it's between 45 minute meetings. And you see the difference in their brain chemistry that their stress hormones aren't spiking. So therefore, they're going to probably actually have better meetings as a result of that. So again, it's just making the business case for how we can get stuck in the paradox but actually there is a case for challenging that paradox within ourselves and I think the key is really starting small as you said pick one thing and then you can build the evidence of that yourself and notice the difference and I also find that our nervous system also layers into this as well if we keep going and we're stuck in that paradox. That is actually a cue of danger for our nervous system. And when I came across that, it was just such a game changer to realize that. So I have done quite a bit of work around polyvagal. So I'm probably jumping the gun now, Susan. But we'll, keep going, we'll go Kerry, into... keep going. Like, actually, do you know what would might be helpful is, what is the nervous system? Yeah. What is the nervous system? How do I know what my nervous system is? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Our nervous system. Actually, I mean, it's interesting if we think about at one stage in our development, we're just a bundle of cells. (laughs) It always fascinates me to think about this. And then there's a point in our development in utero where we have an ignition of our cells And all of a sudden, this nervous system is formed around our spinal cord. And we have this sense of verticality and this sense of beneath us. And yeah, I think that's really, if we think about it in biological terms, then we have this nervous system that is carrying these messages from from our brain to our body and crucially from our body to our brain. The vagus nerve has got a lot of publicity lately. So if if we think about biologically the vagus nerve, that's running from your 10th cranial nerve just at your brainstem. Really interestingly comes across your, your ears. So it affects your hearing, your eyes, right over the muscles of your face, your neck. It can be interesting to trace it actually over your heart and then right down into your gut. So this is the track of the vagus nerve of this this branch of your nervous system. And polyvagal theory is the work of Stephen Porges. And his work has been a bit of a game changer in how we understand the nervous system. He says that our nervous system is always in this conversation with our environment, a process he calls neuroception. So we're having this conversation in our environment, within our body, like pain levels and different sensations in our body. 
and also in the relationship between us, between us and other people. So we're constantly, he calls it a personal surveillance system that's going on beneath our level of conscious awareness. And I think that's really key. That's always reading, are we safe or not? So if we think back to that paradox, if we are, and too much of anything or too soon or, or not enough is a cue of danger for your nervous system. We can think about cues of danger as being big items, you know, like natural disasters, but actually that's our day-to-day -day stuff. So if we're stuck in that paradox, that is a cue of danger for our nervous system. And I think what's really interesting is to think, well, what happens then? What goes on in the nervous system? So if we're feeling safe, so I feel safe with you now and we've got a sense of connection, then we can find curiosity. And this is interesting for us in organisations. And we can collaborate from this space and we can have a sense of ease and vitally connection from this space. But if the cues of dangers come in and that can be just too much, our nervous system will then start to respond. And Deb Dana, who works with Steve Porges, has got an analogy of a ladder. So she says, we start to slip down the ladder and we come into this mobilized energy. So when we were doing that performance paradox, you mentioned about me speeding up, that's some of that sympathetic energy. So biologically, our heart rate is now faster. We know some of this is fight or flight. This lives here. Our adrenals contract. And really interesting to me, actually changes the muscles of your inner ear. Remember the vagus nerve comes over your ear? So we now start to hear things differently. So what might be a neutral cue, we are more likely to perceive that as danger and also changes the vision in how we look at things. So if we put this into organisational language, it's like when you might have a conversation with someone and you're picking that up quite defensively. <laughs> but when you've maybe you've had a bit of space and time and you think about it again, you look at it differently. Or let's say you get an email from someone and it really triggers you. And then you go back and look at it and go, actually, I don't know, you know, when we're in that sympathetic place of mobilization, we are actually more defensive and we're more likely to pick things up in a negative way, which I think is absolutely fascinating. What's so fascinating is we're not recognizing it either because it's happening oh. subconsciously. So actually... How do we attune to that or can we? And I guess we need to be in there at times. That's the other thing, I suppose, as you were talking, we do need to be able to go in there. And and I know there's more as well to polyvagal. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. And yes, we do need to be able to go in there because it's, it is actually a survival mechanism. So sometimes that's absolutely appropriate. The difficulty is that we can just get stuck there. <laughs> so we can end up in this mobilized place as being one place on the ladder. And we're not aware of it as much. And actually, what also happens when that mobilized place, we're more likely to have those ruminating thoughts of criticism of ourselves and perhaps others. And then we're also criticizing ourselves. So we can get we can get stuck there. That's the thing. And 
you know, what Deb Dana says, that a resilient system is actually a flexible system. And as humans, we're, we're always going to be somewhere on this ladder. But the more we can recognise where we are with compassion, and then it's about strategies of moving out of that. And I love what Stephen Porges says, that our nervous system doesn't do appropriate. It just does what it does to keep us safe. And I love that, Susan, because we can get so judgmental with ourselves. And I think to to be able to reframe that as actually I'm feeling dysregulated, that's a very different conversation with yourself and also with other people that if somebody else, a work colleague or a family member or friend is in that mobilized place, often then we can end up in that interaction where we're also feeling defensive. But actually to be able to stand back and say, actually, they're dysregulated at the moment. That opens up a lot of opportunity, actually, for us to stay more in that grounded space of not getting triggered by that, that we can still stay open and actually help them come back up the ladder. Yeah. And is there a step further down the ladder? Yes. And this is what Stephen Porges has really brought to our understanding, because that's more familiar, that sympathetic energy. But what he says is that if that preponderance of danger is even more, we go further down the ladder into what he calls dorsal vagal, or we might call it shutdown. And whereas in that middle part of the ladder, the energy is running very high, In that bottom part of the ladder, our energy goes lower and it's like curling in. So, and our system is like removing us from the situation. And actually, this is the big guns of our nervous system and it's our oldest form of protection. So if you think about when a mouse is caught by a cat in a cat's mouth, it will play dead. So essentially, when we go to the bottom of the ladder, This is a form of us playing dead. And we might think of it as our system is trying to make us more invisible because that is safer. It's safer not to be seen. We close over at a somatic level. There might be a collapse of the shoulders and the solar plexus comes in. The eyes go down. Even when you do that posture, it feels different. And we've got a loss of agency here. We don't feel it's powerless. And we also feel alone. We feel alone in that sympathetic energy as well. That's why it becomes more defensive. We don't feel together. So that bottom of the ladder, yeah, it it feels powerless. And they're not buckets either. If we think about it on a continuum, to dip into that, you might be, like, for example, for me, I find conflict challenging. So if I'm in a conflict conversation, I will start to dissociate and think about the shopping. <laughs> Something really inappropriate. And I have to back in the room. And that's my nervous. So we can look at that. That's my nervous system. I'm feeling overwhelmed by conflict, which feels quite dangerous to me. So I'm dissociating and my system is taking me out of this conversation because actually it's safer not to be in it. So that's an example. You might think oh, I don't spend much time at the bottom of the ladder. But actually, we all know that in some shape or form. And procrastination is there. We've got something we need to do. This is one I know quite well, you know. So we, But we get a bit stuck with it. We're finding it difficult to bring the energy to bring to that. And Deb would say that 
we have a home away from home. I love that language that the sympathetic will feel more familiar to some people. So when they're feeling challenges high, they'll go more into that sympathetic energy. And for other people, they will go more into that shut down place. So, and I love that, that we we have a home away from home, but we all know each part of that ladder. It's interesting. And can we go straight from the top, the, the, the what was it, ventral vagal, straight down to shut down? Yeah. Or do we have to go down the ladder or can we like fly through yeah. it? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. We, we do go down through it, but it can happen very quickly. And actually what's really interesting in that is the same on the return journey that if we're in dorsal and we're in that shutdown, that bottom of the ladder, to be able to get back to ventral, we actually need to bring in some energy. And I find this really interesting. If I'm coaching people and their home away from home is more of that sympathetic and they're high performers and they have a lot of energy and something can happen, they might get ill or grief or something in their life and all of a sudden they're dropped down to the bottom of that ladder and they're trying to employ the same strategies to try and get their energy back and it can feel quite frustrating because they don't work at the bottom of the ladder and actually it's back to thinking in terms of I'm going to do a 5k run quite often I'll hear people saying I just want to get back to my exercise but it feels out of reach so if we find we're at the bottom of that ladder The strategy to help us move up is to think of it in terms of kindling, like if you're lighting a fire, it's to bring a bit of energy, just a bit of kindling. So it's back to even just getting outside, perhaps just taking a little walk around the garden, but you're just bringing a little energy back in. And then when you've got some of that energy, you can build on that. But that can be a real game changer for people that find they're at the bottom and burnout will bring you there too right you're at the bottom of the ladder and you know your system has gone into burnout and your usual strategies aren't working and you feel terrified that how am I going to get out of here so I think it's polyvagal theory is a very hopeful theory in terms of well actually there are strategies we can befriend our nervous system and we can map in terms of well what is the world like for me when I'm in ventral vagal and what feeds my ventral vagal? What really brings me there? It can be nature for people or art, music. What is it that really feeds that for me? And then to understand what's it like for me when I'm in sympathetic? What happens in my body? And crucially, what's the story I'm telling myself? Because I also love that in the theory that our story follows our state. So the emotions and the story we have it's actually dependent on what states we're in and also for dorsal. So what is dorsal like for me when I'm there? So we can map the territory and then we can move in to look at regulating resources. But what helps me move out of dorsal? What helps me move out of sympathetic? And how do I orientate more towards what feeds my ventral? And you talked about people I suppose they there's two of us here and if one of us is in dorsal and one of us is in ventral is there an energy that is stronger that will pull you know will the ventral override the dorsal or will the dorsal override the ventral 
and and do they impact that way yeah 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 great question so yeah and that's part of the theory as well is this idea of social engagement so it is this dynamic that's between us and our nervous systems are talking to each other which is fascinating to me that not consciously but unconsciously we're picking up on each other's nervous system when somebody says something and our nervous system is, is picking that up that there isn't congruence there. It, it's interesting. In terms of your question, well, which one overrides? That there isn't a, a rule on that, really. We don't know. It depends on our system, right? But what we do know is that if we are with someone who is in that shutdown or in that mobilized, the more we can bring ventral energy or we can, and the language on this doesn't always work for everybody. We might call that flow, but the more we can stay centered in that, we can offer that then to somebody else's nervous system. And we don't know whether it can be different, but we can offer that. And there is then the possibility that we can co-regulate together. It's back to that what lies between us, there is magic there in terms of how we can actually resource each other. And I love also the idea, if we think about it in just in terms of dysregulation, that there will be dysregulation. So we're also going to have a dysregulated nervous system talking to a dysregulated nervous system. That's part of life. And in polyvagal, we call that rupture. And I love that. I think there's great liberation in that to think, actually, we are going to have ruptures. We're human. We're working together or we're friends. There will be ruptures because we will be dysregulated at the same time, at some point in time. But we can repair. And I love I love the there's great freedom in that to me. And actually, when we repair, a relationship can become stronger. Totally. And I could see that, actually, that makes so much sense. And as you're talking, I'm I'm imagining a meeting where there are 10 or 12 yeah. people around the table and people are going to be in different states. Yeah. And yeah. I suppose I also think about personalities and is there a link between the personality type, whether that's a disc or Myers-Briggs or all, one of those things? Are some of us more likely to be up in ventral more often because of our personality type or do they interact in some way? And then how, how do we regulate or co-regulate the best energy in a room of yeah. 8, 10, 12 or whatever? Mm, yeah I think that ventral energy or flow energy that is our birthright so we all have that and I think the degree to which that is available to us depends on how strong our neural pathways are and how often we are orientating towards that so again that is why I think it's such a hopeful theory we can all increase our level of ventral so I think yes some people do have more access to that because they've strengthened those pathways and have got those habits in place so let's say nature really feeds their ventral and so they may have a built-in that they, they get out for a walk in the morning before work. They spend time in nature. They're cultivating that ventral energy. And then, of course, the more we do that, the more we have. And it could be like singing for some people is a very ventral experience. 
So I think it's at a practical level, it's the more they are orientating to what feeds their ventral throughout their day, the more they do that. And any of us can do more of that. That's something I love about this. And then your question in a room of eight to 10 people. I think the first thing that comes to mind, there's probably something around actually taking a breath before we start to invite people to arrive in. Because often we're arriving at these meetings and we've been rushing around and we've got different things that we're thinking about. So perhaps, and it doesn't have to be, but one possibility is actually to just pause first. And then we want to try and how do we invite connection? Because the more connected we are, actually, the more we're going to have that sense of curiosity that we can bring collaboration. (laughs) So it could be actually starting the meeting, how are you feeling? or what's happening for you but actually just to spend even just a couple of minutes doing that I suppose underneath is how do we invite connection what might be a way that works for that team and also celebrating successes again we get so caught in the busyness but actually appreciating each other and celebrating what's going well right now and because so often it's problem solving of of what what we need to fix And again, that can narrow our thinking and we become more focused on the problem together and we can find we can slip down the ladder together. So and again, we know this. (laughs) And so how do we how do we bring that into our way of being as a team and pick one thing? So it could be very simple as as a team ritual once a week that you have five, 10 minutes checking in and you're just saying, well, what's going well this week? Yeah. I really like that and it's kind of how I would start a lot of coaching conversations as well is to ask people to reflect on what's gone really well in the last couple of weeks for you because there's a different energy that comes about when we think of ourselves well because you're right we do focus on the stuff we haven't done or haven't gotten around to or (laughs) haven't finished and I can feel myself speed up Thinking like that. Yeah, yeah. And Carrie, you have a beautiful phrase about helping people come home to themselves. In a way, we've drawn a map now (laughs) for people to find their way home, you could Mm. say. But maybe you'd expand a little bit more on that phrase. Yeah, yeah. I do love that term and to think about that coming home to ourselves it's that invitation to come to come back into our true nature and to coming home to ourselves it's having a bit of space to a bit of spaciousness to actually listen and hear the whispers actually and we're hearing the whispers of actually what wants more life within me right now and what actually do I need to let go of so, so to me, that's that coming home to yourself. And if we looked at that in polyvagal, that's really coming back into that ventral place where we can have that sense of ease and that sense of curiosity and excitement. And I think also 
acknowledging that there is a coming home and as part of the human experience, we are also taken out of that. We spiral away from ourselves. And I think David White talks about the first step of coming home to ourselves is actually naming what exiles us. <laughs> so acknowledging coming home acknowledges actually we do get pulled away and we, we get a bit lost. And in, in Celtic mythology, I love they talk about spirals. That's part of the human experience. We spiral away, we get lost, but we're meant to get lost at times. That, that's part of it. And that frame, I find my shoulders drop when I think of that. It's not that we always have to know and be on it all of the time. Which it's funny because that feels like the instruction for life. <laughs> Yeah. to be yeah. to know and to be honest all the time yeah. and yeah. back to perhaps the paradox again because there is I think the conversation we've had we've gone into the body a little bit so you can feel it because it yeah. is easy to intellectualize that this makes a lot of sense it's yeah. a very different thing to make it practical and make it work for you. Yeah, yeah. And almost and then, go against the grain. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking we can come home to ourselves in very difficult situations as well. And I'm just reminded, of, it's about five years ago now that I was told that I needed to have brain surgery, which was quite an overwhelming experience. When I got that news, which was considered an accidental diagnosis, it was a real shock. And I spent quite a bit of time at the bottom of that ladder in terms of feeling overwhelmed, lack of agency and feeling, al yeah, feeling alone. And then going up that ladder to that mobilized place of the ruminating thoughts. Literally, if I die, who will look after the kids? That was like the dagger to the heart. Or defensiveness, which is in that middle place. You know, sod the medical profession. What do they know anyway? I'm going to go off and do my own thing. But actually that coming home to myself was in that situation was only when I could get up to that top of the ladder, which was actually through co-regulation. It was only when I was with other people that I could start to be find a bit of curiosity and come out of the fear and think about possibilities so it was only in that place. So, you know, either talking to my husband or friends, and then I had the great opportunity of spending a day with Nancy Klein, who, you've, if you haven't come across her work, I know you have, Susan, time to think she's amazing. And in that very co-regulated space of being able to see a different possibility and also to see collaboration. So from that space, think actually it's possible that I don't have to have the surgery. Uh, and instead of being in that defensive place with my neurosurgeon and thinking, well, why don't we collaborate and let's get a second opinion outside the jurisdiction. So then having a conversation with him from this place and, and I also really appreciating that he really cared for me. And actually he was trying to save my life. I, you know, so having been able to find a sense of appreciation from that place and then be curious. And then together, um, we said, you know, we'd really like to get a second opinion. And he said, well, actually, I know one of the top neurosurgeons in America. So why don't we send him your data and he can have a look? And the opinion came back not to operate. 
so I think that coming home to ourself, we can do that whatever is going on in our life. We can come back into that, but but we won't always feel it's a journey back. We'll have fear, but we can also spiral back into that place of finding our way through coming home. It feels like, as you talk, the place to be to make decisions. Yes, and if we look at that in a work context, we are going to make our best decisions from that place of ventral vagal. Absolutely. Where we can feel connected and collaborate. Absolutely. So the more we can cultivate that together, the better work we're going to be able to do together. Absolutely. Wow, that was an incredible story. I I couldn't even like say that at the end of your story, but I was thinking of the next question. But thank you for sharing that, Kerry. And believe it or not, our time is up. Well, I was... Where did that go, Susan? We'll just have to come back again. <laughs> but for anyone listening who'd like to know more about you, Kerry, and what you do, what is the best way of connecting? Well, my website is probably the best one, kerrycullen.com. And so there's information on there of upcoming programmes and different things I offer. So that's the best place. Fantastic. And I'll put a link to your website in the show notes as well. Kerry, it has been a joy to record this episode with you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much with me and with the audience. Thank you, Susan. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.